You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. It's considered one of the oldest observances on the Christian calendar. Uh, Its roots possibly dating back to the second century. Uh, It originally consisted of only two to three days, but in the seventh century, it was expanded to 40 days uh, to better reflect the period of time in which Christ was tempted uh, in the wilderness by Satan. And it traditionally begins with something called Ash Wednesday. But now you already know I'm referring to what? Lent. And it's interesting, as you think of Lent throughout church history, it's either been celebrated, ignored, or rejected. And I kind of follow Paul's principle. There's not one day more sacred than another. Uh, Can someone observe Lent and do it in a way that honors God? Absolutely. Can someone else decide they prefer not to kind of acknowledge that? Absolutely. But I'd like to use Lent as an occasion for us as a church to focus our attention on the picture we have of Christ in the Gospels and in Acts. In other words, to to take a time of year in which generally people, at least most of us, are thinking ahead to Easter and celebrating that, celebrating before that Palm Sunday, which is another day that kind of made its way on the Christian calendar around the fourth century, using these milestones to help us focus our attention where it should be uh, on Christ. Uh, And so I direct you to Mark chapter eight and Mark chapter 8, you may recall last Sunday we were in Mark chapter 10, and there's some some similarities here. Uh, If we're going to begin with a look at Christ in the Gospels, it would make sense to start with one, probably the earliest Gospel, and that would be Mark. John Mark is the author of this particular Gospel. We know that he was not an apostle, but he was a very close associate of the apostles, which is one of the criteria for any of the books that have been accepted in the New Testament into the canon. We also know that John Mark, or Mark, got a lot of his information from Peter. And so Peter was also an eyewitness to many of these accounts that would be given to Mark, and Mark recorded them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And as you come to this passage in Mark chapter 8, verse 31 and following, you have Mark identifies Jesus Christ for us as the crucified Savior. And I think as much as we anticipate and look forward to celebrating Christ's resurrection, we we need to slow ourselves down and look first at him being the crucified Savior. And so look with me at verses 31 and 32. Keep in mind that this is the first direct prediction of Christ's death and resurrection in the Gospel of Mark. So you're almost halfway through the Gospel, and there's some allusions prior to this, but this is the first in-your-face announcement of what's going to happen to Christ. Notice verses 31 and 32. It says, He, referring to Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. 
So in this very first direct prediction, notice how Mark emphasizes Jesus began to teach them. He began to give them repeated instruction at different intervals here as to what lied ahead. What was his mission? How would he fulfill the task of being the Messiah? And you can see in your Bibles that this comes right on the heels, both in this gospel and in Matthew's, right on the heels of Peter's confession that, that you are the Christ. And so what better opportunity for Jesus to say to Peter and his disciples, you're grasping a part of what I am as the Messiah, but I need to expand on what that also will include that I am going to be a crucified Savior. So he began to teach them, and then you notice in verse 32, it says, he spoke plainly about this. Now that word's an interesting term. It means he spoke boldly and confidently about this. This was not sort of a, well, you know, things are going to turn south here on us pretty soon, and, you know, this is the, the outcome but he spoke with, with great energy, assurance this was God's will. In other words, he wanted to make sure that his disciples and those who would record these things and pass them on to the church, that what was about to happen, and Jesus is now like two-thirds of the way through his public ministry, so you have a little less than a year left, that what would happen was not a tragedy but it was God's perfect plan. And so in describing that, you notice in verse 31, the necessity of Christ's death for the forgiveness of sin. Very clearly, Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer. This speaks of a necessity to it. And as Tony prayed, and you think of the importance of the law and the gospel, not two different ways of salvation, but the law pointing us to Christ to say all sin must be punished and paid for. So the dilemma we face is not are we sinners or not, but, but how, do, how does this debt get paid? And, and who pays it? And how is it paid? And so you see Jesus here speaking of the, the Son of Man must, and then he adds that he must suffer, he must be rejected, and he must be killed. He, he can't just be hurt or afflicted, and he can't just experience humiliation and ridicule. That is all a part of his role as the crucified Savior. But he is going to have to be killed. And this right away brings to our mind that principle throughout the Old Testament, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. There, there's no covering, no atonement for sin. So Jesus sets forth very plainly and will repeatedly interject this into his interaction with the disciples, the necessity of his death. But the announcement of a crucified Savior also brings to mind God's answer to the human predicament. In other words, the, the problem is sin. And how else can sin be met and paid for? But yet the answer would be extremely shocking to the ears of anyone who heard it then off the lips of Christ 
as well as I think you can see it today. Many respond to the thought of Christ being killed on the cross and that God the Father poured out his wrath on his son. See that as abusive, repulsive. We have a natural desire, I think, where we want to feel like we earn our keep in heaven. You know, we're a good person, so then we go to heaven. We, we've earned it. We've worked for it. So when we want to step back and think, why would this be so shocking? Not, not just to the disciples as Jesus directly put this before them. But why is it still as shocking and disturbing today? Well, look at verses 32 and 33. Jesus did speak plainly about this. And then you have this familiar account. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, we don't know exactly how this played out. But the phrase to, to take can mean either to gently like touch one's arm and kind of, you know, tap and say, can, can I have a minute with you? But it can also mean to, to seize, to, to grab and, and almost to kind of pull to your side and say, we, we need to talk. You know, what, what you just said has gone, that, that's just unbelievable. That This can't be. And it says, Peter pulled him aside, and then he rebuked him. He began to admonish, to seek to correct Christ. Now, I think as you listen to that, you can say, well, well, Peter's motives were good. Let's assume he was doing this. He, he was just concerned. How could this, this one that they came to grow and love, who finally put their trust and faith in, how could he be telling them he's going to die? And, and be treated in such an, uh, an extreme way. But even if we said, well, maybe Peter meant well, but clearly Christ's response indicates, Peter, you, you not only don't know what you're talking about, th those words are, are really have a whole different origin behind them, as we'll see. But it's not just alarming to Peter as a Jew and as the other disciples were Jewish, there, there is no concept in Judaism even today of a suffering Messiah. Those passages that you read in, in Isaiah, they see as referring to servants of God, those who worship God. They do not see them at all as referring to a suffering Messiah. So in a way, for, for Jews today, the concept of a suffering Messiah would, would have the same repulsive response to it. No way. That that's not what the Messiah will be. He will not be a crucified Savior. But I think even also shocking here is, is who's going to be the players in this plot to have Christ crucified? Because I think at this point we might then say, all right, well, it must be really the, the, the lowlifes of Jerusalem who, who are going to team up and, and they'll be the ones that will be this driving force for Christ's suffering, rejection, and death. But then you notice verse 32. The ones who will be the major players are the best of the best. They're the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. They're the Sanhedrin, your, your religious experts, the people who look so righteous. What a shock 
not to just say he's going to die, but then he'll die at the hands of these people? Not, not the worst of humanity, but in a sense, you could argue in that day, the best of humanity. Now, I want you to take a minute and think about how Christ responds to this. Because as shocking as the announcement was, we can almost say his, his response almost catches us off guard. And I think you could say it probably caught the disciples a little off guard. But notice the beginning part of verse 33. It says, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Now, I don't know if I, I saw this as well as I did recently, but why did he turn and look at his disciples? Peter kind of pulls them aside, and maybe they were roughly within, you know, a few feet of the others. But why does Jesus turn and look at all of them? Now, clearly he does respond directly to Peter, but is it possible, as in other times, Jesus was also looking and saying, are you also thinking the same thing as Peter? And we know there are times when Peter is sort of the spokesperson for the group, which comes with his maybe impulsiveness, but, but he speaks often not just for himself, but, but what the others also are kind of wondering. And I think that's an interesting question to consider. Is this rebuke not just Peter, but in a sense, he's, he's rebuking Peter, but indirectly saying, I think all of you are thinking, this is, doesn't make sense. How, how can you be the crucified Savior? We've waited centuries for you to come. And now you've been here two years, and looking back, we can say another year, year and a half of ministry. And, and then you're telling us you're not just leaving, but you're, you're going to be killed. But to, to kind of appreciate, I think, Christ's sharp rebuke to Peter, you want to consider what's at the root of Peter's statement here. What's the driving force that, that he kind of pulls Christ aside to say, you, you can't die? Compare that to what we just said, that Christ's death is absolutely necessary for forgiveness of sin. In other words, what you find here that I think help explains why Christ says, get, get behind me, Satan. You know, what you're thinking right now is not the will of God but actually it's, it's the will of Satan, is that you are putting before yourself this. You want me to have the crown without the cross, and that's impossible. You want forgiveness of sin, and you want me to live. That's impossible. And if, and if you think that sounds like, well, had Christ ever encountered something similar to this, I want you to go back to Mark chapter 4. And in Mark chapter 4, excuse me, Matthew chapter 4, you have the temptation scene where Christ goes into the, the desert. He's there 40 days without food. 
uh, supernatural fast, and then Satan tempts him. And, and I would like us to think about that the final temptation Satan gives is exactly what Peter presents in Mark. Because listen to the similarity in Matthew 4, verses 8 through 10. Matthew 4, verse 8 through 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Now, Satan clearly is lying here. He doesn't have all these things to give Christ. But at the root of this temptation was you don't have to go to the cross. You can still get your crown. You can, you can still have some honor and position if you just will worship me. And isn't that exactly what you hear phrased differently coming out of Peter's mouth? You, you don't need the cross. But, but you can still be the Messiah. We, we love you. We'll, we'll listen to you. We'll follow you. What a reminder to us that you, you cannot speak of the forgiveness of sin without speaking of Christ being the crucified Savior. But, but let's go back to Mark because Jesus isn't done teaching. He has to teach them another lesson. And so you go back to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, and notice what happens in verse 34. Now we move from the Messiahship of Christ as being the crucified Savior and King to a discussion about discipleship. What does it mean, now that you know the identity of Christ, to be identified as a follower of Christ? Verse 34, it says, Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples. So we went from speaking to the group, Peter's remark, Jesus speaking to the disciples, and now he calls the crowds. In other words, Jesus now is going to give some instructions that are applicable to anyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ. In other words, there's not two sets of what does it mean to be a follower, one for the apostles, one for those who are less serious than the apostles, and then another for those who maybe are marginally interested in following Christ. There's only one standard that Jesus Christ sets. And so he calls his own disciples over, any who are interested, and says, let me explain to you the conditions of discipleship. What does it mean to be identified with the one who is the crucified Savior. And so you have three imperatives that you see right in verse 34. First of all, you must deny yourself. Then you must take up your cross. And then you must follow me. Now, deny means completely surrender. Abandonment and trust in Christ. Now, as we read that, we know that's not a one-time act in our life. That, that we continually have to learn how to yield, how to trust. 
whether it be because of circumstances around us, personal issues going on, we're, we're constantly learning. What does that mean to deny myself, to put my desires, my will, and make that subservient to, to what is God's will? What is God's desire? But then he says, you must also be willing to take up your cross. Now, this would present a clear picture and image in the mind of the crowds and the disciples because they probably would have witnessed a criminal who is forced to carry his cross to the place of execution. That was a common practice. And the difference would be, as you saw that criminal, you knew he had no choice in carrying that cross. He had to do it. Jesus is saying, now, as a follower of Christ, think of it this way. You willingly carry the cost of following me. Now, that only makes sense when you think of who is saying this, the one who will be nailed to a cross, the one who will die on the cross. So Jesus is not in any way saying, I'm expecting something from you that I myself have not gone through. But then notice he says also, you must follow me. Now, all of these three imperatives are in a continuous repeated tense. In the Old Testament, you don't find the phrase following God. What you find is the phrase walking with God. When you get to the New Testament, now you find this sort of parallel to that, walking with God, being a disciple of Jesus Christ. But Jesus is going to even elaborate a little further on what does that mean to deny, to take up your cross, and to follow me. And so as you glance at verses 35 through chapter 9, verse 1, you have a clearer perspective on the costs and rewards of discipleship. How will this commitment to Christ affect how we see life in general, how we see this present life that we are in, and how we even view eternity. And so you see the description there beginning at verse 35, the contrast. You, you want to save your life? The way to save your life is to lose it, is to embrace me, to acknowledge me as Lord and Savior and follow me. That is how you find true life. But then he goes on and says, not only that, what, what good is it if you can gain the whole world, but you lose your soul? Now, now we have that eternal perspective being brought into how that affects us when we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And as we've experienced physical needs in our own congregation, extended family members with physical needs, isn't it true that physical sickness and problems suddenly does often change your perspective on life and, and what makes a life meaningful and what is really important in life? Jesus is saying here, this is what this commitment, this identification with me should look like, not just in the life of my disciples, but in the life of everyone who puts their faith in me. Notice verse 38. 
He says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with his angels. Now we fast forward to that day we will stand before him. Who will be those who are honored in God's presence? Not, not the ones that the world tagged some label on it. Very interesting in sports now. I, I think the NFL is the only sport that does this. They, they talk about tagging a player as a franchise player. And, and how important that is if you get that tag, that label. But where's that going to get you? When you stand before God. Where's your job going to get you when you stand before God? Or the number of people you know on Facebook or Twitter? Where does that get you? Knowing Christ and knowing the crucified King should change how we view not just life right now, not just our own life, but how we view eternity. And we know that although the disciples had a long way to go in this process, just like you and me do, we know that they partly got this because in Acts 5, when they come back from being persecuted and they tell the believers, they say, we, we count it a privilege that we have been seen worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. So some of Christ's teaching continue to make its way into their lives. And the same should be true for us. And then you get to verse 1 of chapter 9, which really does best fit with chapter 8. He says, I tell you the truth. This is a, a phrase in Mark that he likes to use. It's sort of a heads up. What follows here is decisive teaching. You want to mark it and note it. He says, I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. This transforming radical change that is ours in Christ is in one sense based on something unseen, but more real than anything else. And in both parallel accounts, this statement is followed by the transfiguration. But I think you can even look beyond the transfiguration. Jesus is referring to his, his death and resurrection. That, that once he raises from the dead, the kingdom of God has been inaugurated and ushered in. It's not that ultimate physical kingdom that it will be one day, but it has been inaugurated. He reigns and rules in the hearts of those who know him as the crucified Savior and identify with him as followers of Jesus Christ. This entire section in Mark, basically Mark 8 through chapter 10, defines for us what it means to say that Jesus is the Messiah, and then also what it means to identify yourself with that Messiah. I was reminded of this just last night. I got an email from, from a pastor I met probably three or four years ago who's in India. Uh, and he was just mentioning some prayer requests and mentioned, pray for this one faculty member at their Bible college uh, who, who was beaten because simply he was out sharing his faith on a street corner in India. So I think it's important we realize that what's being talked about here is just as relevant 
to all of us as it was for the disciples and the crowds to hear this. Because you cannot celebrate the resurrection without understanding what does it mean to speak of a crucified Savior and that we are followers of that one. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for reminding each of us not only who you are, but that our identity is to be found in being a follower of Jesus Christ. Forgive us for failing to weigh accurately, not just the cost that we should be willing to endure, but also the rewards. That whatever we endure in this life does not even come close to comparing to what is ours in Christ Jesus. We pray these things in our Savior's name. Amen.